This podcast is brought to you by PencilPay. Take your wholesale credit applications online, collect a billing method, and control when you get paid. Welcome to Product Hub. I'm your host, Tim Dimitriou. And today's guest is Stacey Visser. He's the owner of Bean Cartel. They're a coffee roaster from the southeast of Melbourne. This is a really good story of ups and downs, and Stacey is a really incredible podcast guest. We go for a while here, about an hour and 40, so I hope you enjoy the show. <laughs> Guys, um, welcome to another episode of Product Hub. Um, I'm Tim Dimitriou from PencilPay, and today we've got um, a special guest, um, someone that we've known for a few years and uh, someone that is a brilliant customer of ours, but also a ripper bloke. Um, his name's Stacey Visser. Welcome, mate. Thanks, mate. So Stacey's the owner of Bean Cartel. The Bean Cartel um, is a coffee roaster based in the southeast of Melbourne, but they service you know, anyone in the state of Victoria, the um, once great state of Victoria. And, um, and, uh, and um, yeah, so we've got Stacey on today, very generous with his time. So, mate, um, I'd love for you to just kick off and just tell us a little bit about yourself and kind of a little bit about the business and kind of where you came from. Yep. Originally, in, in my mid-20s, um, owned and operated a lot of franchises. So I started off with Subway, we were number 21 in the country at the time. Um, had a few Subway franchises, um, uh, five in the end. So we bought and sold those. It was great because we got um, exposure to good systems. So we never really had an idea of business at the age of 25. You want to do it, but you don't know what you're really what you're doing. So um, from there, uh, we branched into um, a Nando's franchise. So it was a first franchisee in South Australia. I used to work at Nando's. Oh, did you? Yeah, I, I did. It's funny. I was a griller. <laughs> I was. I was. Well, and that was hideous. My clothes, my, after the, I swear to God, my clothes after every shift, I almost had to throw them away. They were hideous. <laughs> well, the funny thing is, I, we bought it because we come over here to Melbourne to visit Melbourne, which we do you know, a couple of times a year. Um, and that sort of gave us a bit of exposure to the coffee uh, life mm-hmm. in, in Melbourne. It wasn't quite the same in South Australia. Um and we, we loved Nando's. We thought, we've got to have that in South Australia. But initially, it didn't quite work that well because in South Australia, they've got charcoal chicken places everywhere. Mm-hmm. And I remember when we first started and uh, you'd, you'd have a very small you know, packet of chips and a very small chicken and it would be you know $10. It's a very different price point than charcoal chicken. <laughs> and we get families come in and go, for two bucks, we get... This much chips wrapped around in paper, and, and nearly, and for another eight dollars, we get a full chicken. And look, I fucking love, I love charcoal chicken. It's yeah. brilliant. But having worked at Nando's, when you know what to order from Nando's, yeah. it, it's just, it just doesn't it's, compare. It's, it's, it's brilliant. It is beautiful. Um, and then we had the first boost juice in the country from uh, Janine Ellis. Oh, really? So, uh, boost juice started in in South Australia. Oh, so you, so you, so, so she's in Melbourne. Well, wait, so you had the first, you had the first, the first, first franchise. Jesus. Yeah. So we did that. Um, Did that kick off straight away? Uh, yeah. So the first one was 81 King William Street. Um, and we thought, everyone just think, Man, what? what's this? This is shakes and grinders going berserk. And they used to have good looking crews and it was very pumpy and the music was going crazy. And you know, everyone, it, was, it was unique. It was new. It really was absolutely. at that time. But yeah. the colours, you know, the colours. And it was all, everything was very corporate and very plain. And then Boost Juice hit the scene and it grabbed our attention because we were involved in franchising. Um, 
And it's one of those things when you're in franchise and you're looking at other franchises going, geez, I want to be a part of it. Mm-hmm. Can I make money? Is it new? What's the longevity? How long is it going to you know, last for? Um, and that was her first store. So there was a bit of um, sentimental um, to Janine. And so it was kind of nice that it was a first franchisee. Mm-hmm. And so from that, we learned quite a bit of three different systems and three very, very different franchises. One that was very mature, being Subway. Um, <clears throat> One that was definitely in its infancy, having their first franchisee, and one that was a little bit more international, given that it started, I think, in South Africa. Um, yeah, it did. Yeah. It did. And um, uh, once they were all mature, I guess, call it three or four or five years down the track from when they commenced, obviously <coughs> Boost Juice being the, being the most recent, yep. which one had the best systems out of all three? Oh, they all had different systems. And I think yep. you know, from that we were able to learn, which, which is what we've applied in our factory now. Yeah, you come into our factory... It's clean. Um, a lot of our new branding, which we'll probably get into later, is um, you know based on franchise concepts that I, you know, that that I've seen and sort of some creative juices that we add to that for our own individual flair. But um, they've all got great systems. I really, really, really like the subway systems though, all right, because um, it made you and your staff very accountable for every single bit. Of ingredients that goes into everything, so you knew if your staff were using too much lettuce, too much onion. There's formulas, so mm. it's a really, really good way of saying we're going to teach you about food costs without necessarily telling you that you're actually learning about food costs. Yeah, you know, it's practically happening, and you can see whether or not you know they're throwing out you know 20 kilos of lettuce every week. Um, the staff don't actually have to learn about food costs. They just learn the system. Correct. Right? Yeah. And the and yeah. the weights and the measures. They don't need to they actually don't need to understand the economics of it. No. They need to understand what do I do now? What's what is what what does the book say? Yeah, well so if it says, you know, a footlong has six olives and you walk past and you see your staff just throwing in thirty six olives, you cringe. Which I always encourage. <laughs> yeah. As a customer. Hang on a minute. As There's a customer. As a customer, I just say load them up. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and if you didn't like someone, you'd put, you know, 15 jalapenos on there. <laughs> so even though the formula says only put three. Man, I had it when they skim, like when they skimp on the lettuce. Oh, it's fucking infuriating. <laughs> There's Jimmy again, that asshole customer is getting 15 jalapenos. Exactly. <laughs> um, so the systems are great. Um, and I'd like to think that we've applied a lot of that to, to, to what we do now. We also see that with cafes, like we can see the ones that are a bit out of control. Um, sometimes it's hard to tell them how to run their own business because oh yeah, because often, there's big egos. But often they it's get into business. Egos. Yeah, well they are. they often get into business because they don't want to be told what to do. Yep. So it's hard from a supplier perspective, especially as technical as coffee is, and so many elements can go wrong. It's hard to see them doing it the wrong way. It's, it's difficult. And as a, look, as a business owner, you're a business owner, I'm a business owner, you know, all your customers are business owners and all your competitors are. Yep. You know that you've got some ego, I've got some ego, and every single business owner, you need to have some... Oh, I've, got, I've got no ego, mate. Oh, yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe a little bit. <laughs> every business owner needs to have some level of ego or else... Um, I, I just don't think they can do their job effectively unless they've got a little bit of ego. I think they need, because a lot of ego can sometimes be um, mixed up for, for a little bit of leadership as well. You've got to have yeah. a bit of confidence and a little bit of bravado, I find, to be able to, you know, to be able to lead in a way. Yep, and drive. I mean, they've got to have some drive and, 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 and 
some grit and determination. Because it's fucking hard. It's hard. Oh. And, you know, how many times, you know, our very first subway took four years to make money. So I had, we had two jobs. So my wife worked in the legal industry. She was full-time. Uh, I worked in the pharmaceutical industry as a sales rep, you know, full-time. Um, I had my mum working in the store during the day, and then we would finish our job at 4.30, uh, both of us, my wife and I. And work till 9, six, nine 10. Till 11, 11.30, 12. In the early days, we didn't know how to close the store properly. So mm. we close the store when it when the store hours finished. So after the store shut, then, then you close, close, yeah. And then we worked out, we've got to start closing two hours before. Yeah, Otherwise, right. we're leaving at 2 o'clock in the morning, and we've got to start work at 9 or 8.30. <clears throat> so for 6 to 12 months, you know, we're working seven days a week, you know, Easily 12 to 14 hours a day. We're just going home and sleep. That nearly killed us. Um, but then eventually it, it started making some money. Uh, not a lot, but Subway were, were great. They Back in the day, they saw that we're trying really hard to you know, resurrect a really poor business. Mm-hmm. And they give you opportunities to get other businesses that are more successful in their group. Yep. So the second one we bought. That was our anchor for all of them because it was such a good shop. So that so that's other franchise other franchisees who are selling their store. Is that what it is? Yeah. So the one that the second one we bought was in Heine Street. It was yep. the very first Subway in South Australia. So it already it was already there for seven or eight years. And is there a set multiple that, that those used to sell on? Did they? Was there a did did Subway define a multiple or the multiple was was kind of how much how much you would buy it for? Well, gen- generally you'd sort of work on two point seven to three per one times, times profit. Eight. Yep. Yeah. Um, but with good franchises that are well known and growing, you can get four and five times. Okay. So even when they're not worth it, because they just want to get into the system, mm-hmm. um, and so they're paying a premium to get into the system. Yeah, they're paying for brand, right? Hundred percent. Yeah. And opportunities. Yep. The only negative, I guess, you know, if you're looking at um, growth phases of franchises, mm. um, and probably why they fall off pretty quickly, don't well, they? They can, but <clears throat> you've got to get in and out. I guess reasonably quickly make some money and then maybe keep one or two for cash flow down the track because um, they can cannibalize each other. Some franchises, as in, as in they've 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 got way too many stores. Yeah. And, so yeah. when you're store number twenty one, you've got your next competition might be ten k's away. Yep. But all of a sudden, as the popularity grows and the marketing funds grow, um, and the confidence of the brand grows, and the greed grows. Yeah, the franchisors go, well, hang on a minute, two Ks down the road, there's an opportunity. Yep. And they go, Stace, do you want to do that one? And you go, oh, I can't be bothered. I don't want to do that one. I'd rather do something somewhere else. And they go, well, if you don't do it. Yeah, they must scare you into doing it, right? Like, or, you know, yeah. which is, look, it's a, you know, I mean, if it was your if it was your business, you'd probably, probably end up doing the same thing. Well, look, as long as you don't have profitable stores, um, that are being profitable. Yeah, right? yeah. So what, what would happen is you might have a store doing fifteen thousand dollars a week, um, making really good money. Um, they make you sort of open one up one to two kilometers down the road. Your fifteen grand goes to eleven. The other one's only doing eight or nine. Collectively, the franchise is getting nineteen, twenty grand's worth of. But now it's losing. But now you've got two stores, two sets of costs, and two sets of headaches. Yeah, a fucking nightmare. And you're probably making just as much as one, maybe you're even less. Less, less, yeah. less, definitely less. So it just depends on the maturity of the market. So we, we sort of got in and got out within 10 years. I think a 10-year cycle is pretty good for a really fast-growing brand. How do they... Um, so, I mean, I've got a subway down the road from my place, which I go to occasionally. Um, how do, so do you, know, do you know much about how the, how the subway franchise are going now? Because I feel like it used to be a lot more popular than it is, but that might just be me being in my own little world. <laughs> yeah. As a, you know? So 
back in the day, South Australian WA used to go berserk, mm-hmm. and then Queensland was sort of sat in as third, and it was WASA Queensland. And I think, you know, not putting those states down, but um, Melbourne and Sydney, there's a lot more, more choice. cafes and restaurants and, and, and options. Quality quality yeah, options, so you, yeah. You, first thing I knew when I came to Melbourne 14 years ago, you go to these cafes and you get beautiful paninis and baguettes and, you know, unbelievable uh, grab-and-go food that you just didn't get in South Australia. Mm. Now, over the recent years, it's catching up, no doubt about it. And that they, they're more unique stores now in, in, in those regions than, than in Melbourne. But everything in, Mel- everything in Melbourne, I find, or a lot of the places, very cookie cutter, very, um, you know, someone someone will do it really well. They'll get a couple of write-ups and broadsheet and all the rest of it. Yeah. And then it's just... As long as they haven't saturated certain areas, there's still points of difference. And I think that's where coffee comes in down, you know, you can add as a point of difference in cafe land by not being the same as everyone else. Yeah. Um, yeah, so with franchising, um, you know, we sort of wrapped it up and... How long, to come to Melbourne. how long ago was that? That's 14 years ago. Yep. So my daughter was six and my son was three. So it was a good time to bring them because um, they didn't have massive friendship groups. Mm-hmm. They're still too young. They wouldn't know any different. Yep. Perfect time. <clears throat> and we also sort of did it just in case, you know, as they got older and they wanted to go to Melbourne and Sydney and maybe we couldn't afford to do that yep. because of the price of living. We thought it was just a good opportunity while they're young to put them into a place that was maybe where the business future was for them. Absolutely, at the time or you know, from a career's perspective. And you are, and you've got a. I mean, you know, I know you pretty well. You've got a really, really interesting story about when you came to Melbourne and and everything that everything that happened when you came to Melbourne oh, first up. Yeah. Now I don't know how much you want to dig into that here, yeah, but but yeah. I think the um I think it's a really good story, really good lesson, yeah. and really good. You know, really good, um, really good to understand the the some of the downsides of of oh. of, of actually fighting that fight as well, <laughs> yeah. as opposed to as opposed to saying, "I'm out." You know what I mean, mate? I nearly had the out moment a few times even here. Mm. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, you know, we came over here. We still had a cafe in in Adelaide, and we we're having some um, you know, issues with the landlord because um, we were. Two years into a ten-year lease, um, but they were going to knock the whole building down um, to build specialty shops, and uh, we were the most vocal tenant in saying no, you can't do that um, because of our lease. And um, in the end, they said, "You argue white, we'll argue black until you got nothing left." And I was a bit green and said, "No way, I'm going to fight you." And uh, they fought me till I had nothing left. Yeah, they do. Um, and we had to walk away. So we were ready to go to the Supreme Court over this. And the whole thing was, um, uh, if it had we won, the other seven tenants would have got the benefit from it. So they were going to crush us. Now, I would have walked away at my age, knowing what I know. <clears throat> Back then, early Can, 30s. So, so what, what, what kind of year was that? Or? That was, oh, that would have been... We would have been here for 12 to 18 months. So we just bought a house. So, so about 12 years ago, right? 12, 13 12, 12, years? Almost when the GFC hit. Okay, so this yeah, is, yeah. So, so this is, yeah, 2008 slash 9. And yeah. so and that's one store. So how much how much, how much, much do you reckon you put into that, into that legal fight 12 years ago on one store? Well, <clears throat> we had another another site elsewhere that if this failed, that meant that that one was going to go down too. Mm-hmm. So that went down at the same time. I would probably pour in four or five hundred grand into the, into the legal fight. 
all up. So I, I guess that's a, you know, that's a, I, I think what, what people don't understand um, when they're getting into a legal stoush is that there's actually no winners. No. You can win the legal stoush, but at the end of the day, you're completely fucked money-wise. And the reality is the other person's fucked, so they're not going to be able to pay your costs. <clears throat> so you're effectively putting all this cash into something for, for you know, and you think you think at the start, yeah, 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 this person's going to pay my costs if I win. Yep. I'm in the right. Never happens. Because the other person's always broke at the end of it, and they just can't pay the cost. When you fight a multinational, yeah, <laughs> like um, this was a, a drop in the ocean for them. But yeah, there was an experience. We learnt that, you know, in order to fight fire with fire, we had to go from one solicitor to a solicitor and two juniors to a QC, and they've got a QC, two barristers, two solicitors, a junior, and you're looking across there, and, we, and they've got an in-house general counsel yeah. who can bang out the work yeah. because they and they know it well. As opposed to you having to go and explain it to all these different lawyers who who you spend all this money with because they need to learn the case. Yeah. And every single second that they pick something up, they're being charged when they might have a general counsel that's on staff for a hundred grand a year, hundred fifty grand a year, 100%. or you know, or whatever it is, who can just bang out the work and work all day, and it's a fixed cost. Yeah. It's, and that's all accounted for anyway. So they, mm-hmm. you know, their story rolls on. But it was one for me to. I thought I could take the lease literally. Right, and the clause that we got done over in the end, right, and this is where it was the black and white argument, is we had a um, a demolition clause in the contract, which I learnt from the subway days. Have a demolition clause in there because if they want to demolish the building, they'll have to pay you out mm-hmm. or relocate you or do something. There's, there's some recompense to it all. Um, they chose to go down the path of calling it a renovation. <laughs> so... Fuck me, I thought. So now we've got to go and put renovation and demolition in the contracts? And Contracts co- contracts are actually, when you think about it, they mean nothing. It's all about, at the end of it, it's all about, do you have the will to Keep fight going. this person yeah. in court? Mm. When, that's just, it's always a bad decision to do that. It's actually always a bad decision. It's never, never, ever been a good decision. Well, it started off. 70-30 in our favour. That was the advice. Right? Always is. But it started off as 70 I love it how the advice is. It's, it's never written though, is it? No. The advice is never written. Don't, don't hold us to this, but it's 70-30. Exactly right. Um, and you're like, oh, wow, we're going to win. Then as it all unfolds a few months later and um, all these fees are accrued for both parties. Accumulating and accumulating um, and just... Because if we lose, we're going to pay theirs. So even if we walk away towards the end, we've got to negotiate not having to pay their fees, yep. which is unbelievable. Even when you say... It's more lawyers as well, by the yeah. way. Because it's... because it's and, it, and it's also after you lose. So after you've been... After you know that you've lost, okay. you still need to spend money on lawyers. <laughs> on lawyers. It's out of control. So, and then I'll never forget it. And they said, um, we've just received a fax. Because right? it was back in the fax days. <laughs> hey, now, <laughs> lawyers, by the way, lawyers are still receiving faxes. Yeah. They well, are. They have, no, right? no, they're still now. <laughs> uh, it's, it's crazy. So they go, oh, we've just received this fax. And once I tell you about the fax, the facts, um, I thought, why wasn't that presented at the beginning so we could have stopped all of this? This, uh, this apparent fax brought the, the case to 50-50. And I go, well, what does that mean? They go, well... Now your, your chances of, of winning are only half. So it's gone from 70 to 50. Then um, the advice from these guys from there was, this is the cost of the other party to date. So now they started presenting costs. 
this is what the other side's likely to be. This is what you've accrued to date over here. If you lose, this is the total amount. And I've gone, this system it's sucks. The system, the system's built for, it's built for lawyers yeah. and it's built for, <clears throat> it's built for the establishment to be able to just keep going. The fact, if you've ever been through the process and you see the fact that you can go <clears throat> to court and they call it a mention, then you can go back to court again mm. and nothing happens and you it ends up getting adjourned then you go back again it gets adjourned again and then you go you say all right i want to get this sorted and we're going to go we're going to go for a speedy trial right yeah. we're going to go for a summary judgment or something like that and then you go to a summary judgment and the facts are clearly one way or the other and the judge is not prepared to to do a ruling mm. and then you set a trial date and then once you set a trial date then what happens is the judge says, oh, you guys should go and mediate. Then you go and mediate and you're almost at a, at a solution <clears throat> and the um, and the judge says, do you need more time? So you lose your trial date <laughs> and it just, it's this thing well, that just keeps on going and the only person that makes any money is lawyers. Well, the mediation, <clears throat> excuse me, the mediation side of things is um, it doesn't happen often enough and it doesn't happen fast enough, all right, because had we been able to sit in front of each other or even in two rooms and nutted this out in 24 hours maybe come back the next day um it wouldn't have the 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 total cost to me wouldn't have been that much and we could have come to the same conclusion as soon as there's a writ to go to court to do it we could have done it in mediation as soon as there's a writ so as soon as the as soon as you've actually put it into court lodged it and it's got these are my grievances Mm. these are all the points these are all the facts what i consider the facts it should happen the next day. You should be in mediation the next day yep. with someone running the mediation. Yep. Because usually, I mean, one side can't see the light. This side can't see the light. And you need someone to try and pull you back in together. Yep. And it should happen immediately. But <clears throat> if they did that, the lawyers wouldn't get rich. So, of course, that's never going to happen. Well, we we basically, um, we were right in the throes of doing a renovation on a house here in Melbourne. The first house we bought because we rented for the first 18 months or two years. The GFC hit at the same time. So I've had GFC hit. We thought we were going to get X amount for the property. We thought they might have solved some of our issues over here with the um, the legal side of things. Um, we'd already had to close down two cafes in the end. So what we made in 10 years of Subway, we lost everything and our house and minus 500 grand <laughs> in 18 months. In 18 months. So when you're... <clears throat> when you're... When you've lost everything, yep. and so this is 10 years ago? 12 and a half. 12 and a half years ago. So you lost everything and you're negative 500, Correct. right? Um, do you choose at that point to try and dig yourself out or do you yep. choose at that point to say, all right? So what had happened is um, we, the banks basically took, took everything at the time. We kept our nose clean with keeping the debt there. I know what it's like, trust me. <laughs> yeah. Well, we, we kept our nose because the business was registered in 1999 through our trust. Yeah. It's been, I said, we have to keep that as clean as possible um, the whole way through because that now is our only asset. Mm-hmm. So believe it or not, that 500 grand loss was our only asset. So if we walked away... Losses carried forward type of thing. Yeah. So yep. the next 500 grand of income we earn, we pay no tax mm-hmm. on. So my accountant said, that is your only asset state because, in effect, that's probably worth net three hundred grand to you. Mm-hmm. Right? Do whatever you can. We couldn't get the doll. 
right? Because um, um, there was a period of 12 weeks before you can reapply. Mm-hmm. You had no money whatsoever. Um, I had coffee vending machines. So I had a run of, I bought some coffee machines, put a um, coin machine on it and went out to a lot of nursing homes and aged care centres. Um, we did coffee vending. So my wife and I, with two young kids... Went out um, to the nursing homes, just like Joe Biden. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not that far away from it. <laughs> um, and so we are living, living off coins from a... From vending machines so we had 20 out there maybe 14 working properly mm-hmm. but then what we did is um you know well they tried to repossess the car that was another that was a hilarious story in itself um that was our only asset the guy comes to the gates and says um i'm here to repossess um the um mazda cx9 right which was our only asset and we probably had 15 grand left in it mm-hmm. and i said well Mate, it's not here. My wife's got it. And he said, well, I'm come to repossess it. And I said, well, I'm going to ring my wife and tell her to go and park it at a friend's house. And, and to, you won't ever know where that car is. And go and fuck yourself. Yeah, basically. <laughs> yeah. And he was really awesome. Okay. Right? And he said, Look, I'm just doing my job. Here's my car. And I said, just let, us, let, let me have a chance to sell the car because we need a car. Yep. And he said, put the ad in. And email it through to me to show me that you've actually committed to selling the yep, car. Yeah, And they can back off a bit. Yeah, he goes, buys us some time. And then we ended up buying a, um, a Mitsubishi 380 for, for 12 grand. At a, what's a Mitsubishi? What's like a, a Magna. Yeah, okay, I, yeah, yeah. I, I say Mitsubishi um, Magna to my wife. And she goes, no, it's a 380. Because the 380 was the upmarket version of the Magna. <laughs> actually, there's a very funny story about me about me driving a Magna uh, on the way home from Cuba one night, but I won't cover that. <laughs> well, mate, um, there's nothing sexy about a Mitsubishi Magna. No, there's not. <laughs> so we had this... Um, we had the car and we had 13, 14 um, vending machines that were actually working properly. Uh, $2 a pop. Um, and that was it. So, and I'm sitting there thinking, there's no way. I don't really know. Um, I don't really know how we're going to do this on just vending machines, right, to be honest. And the biggest driver for me was having been in business for 10, 12 years prior, I didn't want to go back and work for someone. That's just me. Oh, it'd be hideous. So whatever we needed to do to get through it, you know, if we, you know, we missed out on the property market for seven or eight years before we re-entered um, about six, seven years ago. Um, five, so five, six years of no property. Um, but what I did was I bundled up uh, coffee vending machines into runs of 10. So I might buy a machine for 5,000, set up a run of 10 for um, maybe a, a husband and wife who wants to do something extra on top of their, their income. And sell the asset. So that 10, I'd sell in a delivery run mm-hmm. and it would take someone four or five hours on that day to drive around, clean the machine, take the money out, give it a quick service, move on to the next one. And I sold two for about 110. Two, two runs. Two runs. Yep. So that gave me about 60 to 120 grand. And that happened in eight months. I'm like, whoa, bit of relief. We're not yep. living on coins anymore. <clears throat> so that money... Um, I guess we were living off, but we're trying to keep some of it to put into a business. Mm-hmm. Um, so from there, um, we, we had people interested in our coffee through the vending machines, which I thought was bizarre because it's a vending machine. Why would a few cafes or people refer you to a cafe? The, the, the coffee that you're putting in the vending machines, were you roasting it yourself no. or you get it so externally? Mm-hmm. 
Yep. So someone else is roasting them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we'd use their brand in, in the machine. Yep. Um, but people are saying, geez, we love the coffee in, in, in the machines. We're trying to get good quality, you know, powder milk and all that sort of mm-hmm. stuff. And mm-hmm. The chocolates were beautiful. Um, but then automatic coffee machines started coming with um, fresh milk. Mm-hmm. So we started getting into the office market. So a little bit of equity we got allowed us to um, get borrowings from a finance company. Um, high rates, non-bank, oh, yeah. non-banking. Um, yeah, they don't. Um, yeah, they're 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 twenty to fifty percent. Can be, and uh, we we were lucky enough to be involved with a company called Geared Finance. Oh yeah, yeah, unreal guys. And if it wasn't for them, the Geared Asset Finance. Yeah. Um, is it is it Maddie? Yeah, Matt Taverner. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. Unreal. They're, and they've been one of our machine finances for ten years now. Yeah, and, no. You know, they they gave us a start when a lot of the banks wouldn't. Yep. And we had to pay higher rates, but we, we knew that, right? And still to this day, we're still pumping machines through gear finance. That's brilliant. But that gave us a start. We got into the office market, and then um, from the office market, we started getting uh, referrals out into coffee land. Now, we were doing fair trade and rainforest alliance coffee back then. Our brand was called Organico, um, but Organico Prima wasn't – it was good for the offices, but it wasn't really – Sexy for the cafe. A cafe, a cafe isn't going to buy that. No, yeah. well, we did have a few, um, and that's when I thought the cafe side of it's very different. Mm. Um, <clears throat> but there's higher volume, um, and I guess less labour intensive because cafe. I, yeah, as a supplier, long time to win a customer. It is, but yeah. they're they're generally pretty loyal. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Um, but in the office, market, it's a big shift. It's a big shift to to, to go from coffee supplier to coffee supplier. Is a it's a it's a significant change to the way you're operating. Oh yeah, I mean, it's very hands on in automatic, the automatic coffee world because you've got to clean the machines often. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of training, so you, and a lot of repairs. Bit, but that also means that you're constantly in front of the customer, right? True. So you, you do keep those customers for a long time too. But a lot of office coffee goes up for tender. Mm-hmm. So you could be you know great for three years, and then all of a sudden they go out to tender again, and you, and you don't get it, and you've got all these machines sitting around. It's just because you've got corporates, and that, and and, that, and that's how they operate. Yeah, oh, a new person comes into a role. He's the new purchasing officer. Wants to make a name for himself or herself, and he wants a bunch of new suppliers. Yeah, yeah. We've saved the business this amount of costs, and they go, "Oh, you're an unreal purchaser." And mm-hmm. all of a sudden, loyalty can, can go out of the window, but you can get recontracted by because. Um, yeah, you obviously own a lot of the equipment by that stage. You drop your price and recontract. So I enjoyed that side of it, but I really started to enjoy the coffee side of it and um, sorry, the cafe side um, and also wholesaling, like private label. Um, also, you know, private label guys on selling our coffee. So we had someone roast for us and we started getting into more commercial quantities. Then once we built it up to a certain level, um, we, uh, we started doing it ourselves. And when we started doing it ourselves, we changed the brand again from Organico Prima uh, to the Bean Cartel, which has been the last six years. When you were setting up the roastery to start doing it yourself, yeah, it's story, it's yeah. a it's a significant everything, a significant investment, significant um, you know significant premises you need. Yep. It's the equipment, the premises, it's the processes, it's the, you know, I mean, what goes in, people probably don't realize what actually goes into roasting coffee. Um, the digitization that you have and need now to be able to make sure it actually comes out properly at the other end, then you got to bag it up and blah, 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 blah. Then you got to, plus you got to source the green beans at the front end. Can you run through that yeah, process well, and then talk about the, some of the challenges that you had actually getting a, getting a bag of coffee at the end of it ready to go to a customer? Yeah, I can. Um, we had someone else roasting for us. So they were roasting um, our beans that we sourced 
but roasting it to their profile in our bags and we're distributing it, which we've got quite a number of uh, customers. We do that for now, ironically, which is mm-hmm. why I've got a really good affinity with those clients because I was that sort of client um, when someone was contract roasting for me. Um, but then you, you sort of, you, you're doing that and then you secure a premises. You've got to get, you know, 50 to 100 mil gas lines run from the street where you're the only one in the whole complex that, you know, needs that to run a factory. So it's not existing. It's not existing. So mm. it's a lot of pre-planning. Like where we are right now um, was just dirt. So when we sp- spoke to the landlord, um, landlord was very good about building this for us and proactive in getting the gas line through here before they laid the, fa- laid, laid the foundations. And one of the, I'll just chime in there. So one of the things that, um, one of the things that Stacey's got, I'd like, I'd be really keen for everyone to to check out the um, check out the the video of this podcast because um, what we'll do is we'll actually go downstairs and yeah. we'll we'll do a full um, a full video of of exactly what it looks like yeah. downstairs in the factory because um, I think that once people see the size of um, the operation, the size of machinery and the workflow, they're really really amazed at the level of technology that's required. And that was the big thing. I mean, I got to see how someone else ran their their roastery. Tommy, just quickly, can you put a note in that we'll go and we'll go and record downstairs? Yep. Um, I had an opportunity to see how someone else ran their business, and then thought and got so much so much education from them on it. But in the background, in the back of my mind, I kept thinking about the franchises mm. and how we can meld the two together to make it look. Uh, and run more systems processes yeah yeah. yeah. so i already had that idea i went to sydney um uh, imf uh took me to sydney to have a look at some other international monetary fund (laughs) (laughs) i wish i wish um geez i could do for some now buying green beans it's gone out of control now um yeah so went to sydney had a look at a couple of roasteries that had their equipment in there so i got a guide of how their setup was and which was really invaluable to see space like what sort of size warehouse i needed mm-hmm. and so we we got this 40 50 square meters bigger than one of the ones that we looked at because it was just a bit tight yep um and yeah i mean the one of the hardest parts of it was you have to pay for everything as it's getting manufactured overseas 50 percent up front the balance before it comes doesn't come for two to two to three months even when they send it mm. then you've got to bring it here set it all up test it run it so it's it's twelve months of extra costs, and you 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 probably chew through a significant volume of beans getting it getting everything right. Oh, there's another like, story on that. You one. know, <laughs> <laughs> oh mate, it was yeah. And we were using a brand baddie elsewhere, and we thought that oh, it'd be pretty easy just to come across here and use an IMF and uh, extrapolate the profiles across to the IMF roaster. No problems. <laughs> no, no. So for four months, I reckon we. We filled the, the bin outside, the big commercial um, dumpster bins. Mm. Uh, we're filling them up with coffee nearly every every day, every second day until the, the bin company rang us and said, can you stop filling up the bins with um, wasted coffee? Because they, they can't get rid of it. Oh, they're so heavy. <laughs> so heavy. You know, you're bending the forks on the on the trucks. Jesus. <laughs> oh shit! Where am I going to put all this coffee? I was going to say, them? like, usually those bins are not uh, are, are not filled in a in a really economic way, no. but uh, coffee beans are pretty small. They are. Yeah. Let's just say, um, in one of those bins, it's it's quite dense. Like the kilos were high. It'd be half a ton sitting in the bin. So, I probably ripped through 
40, 50 grand's worth of coffee that were wasted because we can't send that coffee out to clients when they're used to the coffee that they were getting from us originally. Mm -hmm. It would have been suicide. We would have lost all these, these clients. So it was killing me. And I think that's probably, the, that's one of the other things with coffee is, you know, you talk about these, um, you know, we, t we talk with suppliers all the time. And, and I, if you're a producer, if you're a producer as opposed to just a distributor or supplier, yeah. you've got this art versus science thing that constantly goes around. And you can have two machines that are the same brand and that are supposed to be the same, but they just work differently. And like there's, you need different settings and all the rest of it. There's this... There is an art to everything um, Everything in terms of production of this mm. stuff, whether it's beer or spirits or coffee, mm. you still have to produce it and it still has to be unique and it still has to be your way on your particular machine in your particular climate. And it's and there is a lot of tinkering that goes on. It's not just this is the method and this is how it's going to end up. It's out of control. Like, and because you know how your coffee tasted previously and then all of a sudden you're in a new premises and you're tasting the coffee, you go, this is shit. Mm. I can't get this out to my clients. It tastes like crap. Um, so that happened for four months and mate, we got down to 20 grand left. Right. Who's your first customer? Who's the first person that said, yep, I'll take your coffee and I'll use it. Well, that was when I was actually doing uh, back in the vending days when I was doing office coffee. Yep. So National Australia Bank was my first big client. We did each of their floors for office coffee. Mm -hmm. And then uh, Royal Brighton Yacht Club was another, um, our first cafe. Yep. Right. And they're still with us, you know, 12 years down the track. Yeah, awesome. Which is great. And they're, they're great, great crew down there. Um, so, yeah, I mean, look, we're probably down to our last 20. Mm -hmm. And I started shitting myself again because I had flashbacks of losing everything again. And that was December four and a half years ago. So, luckily, when we got in, Green bean pricing was uh, at a reasonable level. Unlike now. Unlike now, yeah, absolutely. We had, we contracted a lot of good good coffee with some great suppliers uh, for long term. So, you know, 12-month contracts, 24-month contracts rolling. And that really taught me a lesson in uh, budgeting for fluctuations in the Australian dollar, um, cartage, um, you know, frost that you know, might happen in big countries like Brazil. So we had some good, steady... Um, input costs. We only had 18 months of good business here and then COVID hit. So we have generally moved into our first factory ever. 18 months in, we're going, how good is this? We're finally doing, it's the best business we've ever had in our lives. Um, it's all us. It's our brand. It's everything we've always wanted. No franchisor. Low, low amount of staff. It's not like running a cafe with six it's chefs just, and, yeah. and 10 front of house or 1,500 front of house. You've got your, yeah. No, Staff that don't leave, mm -hmm. very, very low turnover. An intimate team, like a family, loving it. 18 months, oh, hey, good, how good's this? We've reversed, we're reversing everything that's happened. Fucking COVID hit, didn't it? Right? And, mate, there I am again going, you know, we're going to lose it. We're going to lose everything. So we went into defensive mode. Mm. So for two years, it was all about you know, trying to keep our existing clients happy. Um, zero growth, um, making sure our input costs are low, um, you know, using the incentives from the government-wise. The government did a brilliant job, a brilliant job in uh, propping up a lot of businesses and, and, and staffing. We kept all our staff through that phase. And yeah. I, I, I also think one of the, 
one of the reasons why you you sit there today and you say, okay, government did a good job is because it wasn't just the government that did, that did a good job. You had, you'd planned for this five years ago, yep. right? It's clear that you planned for this five years ago. I know because, you know, we've been talking for probably three years now, thereabouts, yeah. right? And you, I think about four years ago, you said to yourself, all right, we need to start to automate all this shit because, yep. because we're taking orders over the phone and it's a fucking nightmare yep. and everything's a mess. And then someone doesn't enter the order properly or they don't enter it at all. Something gets missed. And you've got this entire process all the way from getting a green bean come through the door yep. all the way through to, okay, I need to deliver this on a certain date, a certain type to this customer in a certain area and try and make the economics work. It's a yep. lot. So can you tell us about the, the software that you um, that you went and start, started building four years ago and you've been iterating that over the, over yeah, the time? every 12 months we're refreshing it and, and updating it and doing things. Well, it started with, um, we never had any family holidays. Um, That's right. <laughs> we, we had no family holidays because we had no money. Yep. Right? We're trying to rebuild the business and you know, keep, keep, keep you know, the family going and send them to school and all that sort of stuff, which you know, it was never private schools or private public schools um just had no money um so when we started to come into some money through through this business um it took the family to thailand first overseas trip you know the four of us and each morning at seven o'clock in the morning <clears throat> they're all they're having breakfast and i said oh i've got to take the phone orders <laughs> uh, so from seven to eight thirty every day or four days because we monday tuesday wednesday thursday um, I'm taking the phone orders, writing them down, putting them on an email, sending them to the team so they can pick and pack. Um, we didn't have the we didn't weren't making enough money really to have staff to sit and take orders. Mm. It was myself, a driver. Um, back then there was no roaster because we we're getting a contract roasted elsewhere. So the idea started back when someone else was roasting for me. Um, yeah. So you had you had all of your. All of the bulky, all the bulky fixed costs that you would expect to have in a business, you kind of wanted to keep it as variable as possible yeah. until you got to a point where you knew you had enough revenue coming through the door. Exactly. Yeah. So for me, it was like I was really pissed off that you know, the first holiday we take from seven to eight thirty every day. I'm taking phone orders and mm-hmm. setting it up, um, <clears throat> and then at the end of the day, um, the staff would email me all the deliveries for the day, mm-hmm. and then I have to sit on zero. And manually import every invoice on zero. Yeah. There's another hour and a half every night. So three hours a day, just four days of the ten day holiday. I'm doing that, and I'm, I'm for fuck's sake, like, <laughs> like, 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 couldn't like, relax. Like just so your customers can order stuff. Just so they can order, um, and we get it out to them. Yeah. And we don't stuff up everything. So that in the end, what we did is we developed an app that um, I, I thought all the issues that presented. Every single one of those issues needs to go away. So, um, and I don't want more staff, mm. right? Just for this particular thing, and I don't want someone doing a hybrid role um, that's not in their area of expertise. So, we developed an app that basically sends a, a link out to the client that the day or two days before their order. It's a call to action. They have to hit that link. Uh, they hit that link. Up comes the Dropbox with only their products. They choose their products goes into everyone's iPhones, everyone's uh, iPads, everyone's computers in the factory and out on the road. Um, they scan it with their phone. So we had you know QR codes before QR codes were a thing mm-hmm. in COVID, right? So we were using QR codes um, for all of our stock. Um, then they'd go out, do the delivery, 
and get the cafe to sign for it and go into the cloud. So mm-hmm. it's got you know, Jenny, manager um, of this particular cafe. There's a signature, it goes into the cloud. So we've got a copy for the owner of the business if he's not there, um, a copy in our system mm-hmm. because often um, you'd get in the old way we are doing it in triplicate, in invoice book on triplicate. A carbon copy. Carbon copy stuff. Yeah. You wouldn't get a, sometimes you didn't get a signature. And go, oh, we didn't order that, did we? Yep. Go, yeah, you did. Yeah, it's fine when things are fine. Until but when things are not fine, <laughs> oh, no, I wouldn't order that. We never ordered yeah. 40 kilos, but you've ordered 40 kilos every week for the last Forever. six weeks. <laughs> yeah. Or six months. Um, oh, it was just that week. It was just that oh, week. Oh, that week it was quiet. We did 10. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. So I'm taking, eliminating all of that. Um, but the beauty of this system is... Um, we can create delivery runs. So we can just drag and drop where they are on a run. If someone runs out of something that's usually at the end of the day, we flip it and we make them the first delivery and we're still in order but in reverse back to front. We can change the runs. We can put them onto a do- another day. Um, One of the things I'd, I'd love about the system is the accountability that it gives to staff. Now, yep. um, so... <clears throat> One of the things about the system that Stacey's built, which we you know when we started talking and you know when Stacey came on board Pencil Pay um, and he was telling us about the system, I love the fact that um, all the stock was there and available in the warehouse, but someone had to check it out themselves. Yep. So rather than having a warehouse manager sitting in there and, and you know you know giving out the stock and that type of thing, orders come in and you've actually got the driver or the sales rep Yep. Or the same that, or that's basically the same person all of the time. Mm. Comes in, they have to check out all the stuff. So it's barcode, everything's barcoded or QR coded, and they check the stock out, put it into their van, so you know exactly what's driving around, how much stock's driving around everywhere, yep. and then when they go and drop it off, <clears throat> they have to check it out of their van, so you know exactly how many kilos are in that van at any one time. Which yep. you know, which does limit a lot of things. And one of those things is one of your staff members fucking you over because often they'll sell. The, well, this this is this is what I've heard happens from time to time. Yeah. They might sell product and you know, and they might sell it for cash to, to people. And I mean, we we like to think that this stuff doesn't happen, but the reality is we're dealing with people here, and people do stuff. Yep, it's the same as putting your hand on the till. You know, you, cafe. you serve, serve yep. a coffee and a sandwich, but you don't charge it and put the money in your pocket. Mm-hmm. It's, it's no different in wholesale. So it's about setting up systems to try to foolproof that. It's not always foolproof, and that's why we're always evolving our system. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, stock wastage was the thing that we found um, um, we needed to tidy up because if stock had, had been you know, past a date or whatever, um, it needed to come out of the system permanently so that it couldn't be unsold. Um, so there's a few little nuances that we, you know, we worked out over time and still are. But the beauty of this system is it also connected to zero. So the idea of me coming, you know, being 5.30, 6 o'clock on a holiday or in the night time, and have an input all these invoices or have a bookkeeper inputting the invoices. Um, they went because the app, as soon as they signed for it, as soon as it went into the cloud, it connected to zero, created the invoices exactly the same as what they've ordered. Um, and all I have to do is go into the back end every night. They're all sitting there in draft. And I'll just go click, 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 send. And I'm happy to do that anywhere in the world. It wouldn't worry me. Click, 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 send. And not only does that, so that obviously decreases the labor that's to take the order, but also removes every single mistake because 
100%. Because humans just make errors. Like, it's just it's how we are. Yeah. Um, and um, entering stuff into your accounting system, you want it to be the right stuff. Yep. But if you don't have to enter it, happy days. Well, some, often in the early days, we might not have enough decaf in the car. All of a sudden, oh, we just ran out of decaf. You know, sorry about that. And then I have to drive all the way back to the factory for an hour or 40 minutes and go back out to the client. All of a sudden, instead of being able to do 20, 22 deliveries in the day, you can only do 13. So what we've been able to do is... Um, almost double the amount of deliveries we can do on individual days which makes the productivity of the staff member um, elite and you've done that by you've done that by by streamlining and automating your runs can you tell us through how you've done, how you did the runs yeah so it's all in in areas so you know if a cafe based on the closeness of one cafe to the next that's in our system mm-hmm. right so if we start to get new clients in other areas we might have to say right well you know Timmy's Cafe is usually on a Monday. That's probably at the end of the run, furthest away from where we started. We might put that on a Tuesday because we just picked up a few clients that are on the Tuesday run. We'll add to that Tuesday run. So eventually, Monday is sort of capped at anywhere between 19 and 22 deliveries. Um, you, you physically can't do anymore. And that's, that's the other thing that, that COVID did to cafe hours. Once upon a time, the cafes would still be there at 4, 4.30 in the afternoon. They're hardly there past two thirty, three o'clock now. Mm. So, so you had limited. Shorter, so you had a limited amount of hours where you could do deliveries. Yeah. So we had to get bigger vans, um, so that they wouldn't have to come back halfway through a run and refill the van again. Mm-hmm. So you know, medium wheelbase and a long wheelbase van, so that you can fit more in. We added milks, you know, um, almond milk, soy, mm-hmm. all those bigger, bulky products in cups and lids, which we never used to do before COVID. And the and I know you do you you do do you you do your own you know chocolates and teas and all that type of thing as well. Yeah, we've got a fantastic chocolate and chai supplier that does private label for us, so it's their chocolate in our bags. Yep, um, which gives it a little bit more uniqueness. But mm-hmm. we also sell a lot of their chocolate as well, so that there's theirs and ours together it gives the clients op- options. Um, but yeah, with, with the delivery runs, um, our Mondays through Friday are really streamlined um, in terms of um, not driving from one point to another and having too big a gap. Mm-hmm. Right? 50 minutes in between one cafe and another or 30 minutes is just... Economics don't you. work. It kills you. You've got to pay for everything along the way. You have to pay for the staff member to drive it. You've yeah. got to pay for the car. You've got to pay for the fuel. And yeah. right now, that's pretty expensive. Yeah, it's, it's horrendous, yeah. Um, which is something, you know, down the track, when we're looking at uh, electric electric vans it's just started to come out we want us to see a little bit more of them uh, before we go down yeah, i was going to say the um the you know electrics are it's a it's a great concept in in practice but when you're trying to power something that is that needs that needs grant yeah um you know I, I always think about the idea of um of you know people talking about oh one day we'll be able to put everything on electric and I think about the idea of getting a cement mixer on, on electric. <laughs> They'd probably be able to deliver, I don't know, one one or two kilos of cement. <laughs> I don't know. I've, I've driven Mel, Mel, our national manager. She, I don't know if she's like Nostradamus, but she asked to get um, a fully maintained company car rather than an allowance. And I said, what do you get your eye on? And she was driving around an Alfa Romeo potted up thing that was chilling through the petrol. And she said, um, can I have a Tesla? Never thought of it. And she goes, I've already done the sums. Um, it's going to cost more in repayments, but it's only costing me $10 in electricity to fill it up. 
So she was smart enough to calculate the cost in dollars for the petrol and say, well, let's put that into a better car. Yep. And I went, why not? Here's your annual cost. Yeah, here yeah. it is. So for anyone who's, for anyone who's looking, to, who, who's looking to, to, to get something better out of their boss, present a good economic Absolutely. picture. PowerPoint presentations work well with me, even my son. <laughs> so if you want something, yep. I want to see a PowerPoint presentation. I need to see return. <laughs> so now when he wants something serious, he says, Dad, I've got a PowerPoint presentation. <laughs> oh, fuck me. Let's have a look. <laughs> um, but, and the funny thing is, the reason why I say Mel's Nostradamus, four weeks after she got the Tesla, petrol prices went from $1.10, $1.20 to $2.30. So she's coming thinking she's a guru. <laughs> <laughs> Look how much money I've saved you. Did she get one? Tesla? Yeah. Yeah, she's got one. There we go. Yeah. See? <laughs> but, but what I was, was going to say that you talk about the cement mixer, um, that Tesla does 0 to 100 in about 3.7 seconds. Oh, it's they are. They're, 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 they're seriously powerful. Um, one of the things I... One of the things... I mean, I... I, I I've I've sat in a few of them and been in a few of them. They're fucking. They're fast. They're really fast. But I question the um. You know, I question. I, I think it's a really good technology. But I question the uh. I question how much better it is for for all the stuff that it it um proposes to be. I agree. No one really knows where it's, you know, put all those batteries and uh, and it's pretty uh to produce all that electricity. It doesn't just come out of the wall. No. There's uh stuff that goes into it and. Um, coal, uh, burning coal is one of those because um, let's face it, you know, renewables, what's that? Three or four percent of the, of the energy that we use is renewables, and the rest is coal and gas. So I think people need to, you know, um, educate themselves on that. But anyway, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm totally with you. I just think, um, I think at the end of the day, um, you know, it's a little bit like what we've done with the IMF roaster that uses 30 percent of the gas that the Brand Batty roaster was using, yep, yep. and Brand Batty are better now. Like much better now because oh, they all have to be. Don't everyone they? has to be, yeah. Um, but who knows? I think the government's going to bring out more incentives and um, for businesses. I'm already getting emails now saying, "Can we do an energy audit of your business? Yeah. And you can borrow X money to put solar panels on, and what credits you get from um, the energy go towards repaying back the solar panels over 20 years." So what they're trying to this is a really good initiative, and I think um, there's three major councils here that are doing it, and we're in Monash here, um, where you can go and get all this stuff done, energy-saving water systems, and you're not paying for any of it. It's coming out of the grid that you're generating yourself. So, so for, they're, getting, for, better, they're and, getting better at it. And for you guys, I mean, for, for, for a commercial operation, it's actually really good because you guys operate during the day. Yeah, if you you know the pro the 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 issue with um the issue with a lot of the, with a lot of you know solar and that type of thing is if it's if it's residential yeah. imagine in 10 years time when we go when everyone goes gets home from work at 6 p.m right and then they go and they plug in their electric car there's going to be a enormous stress on the power grid yeah. and there's going to be no battery power there trying to you know uh, that can that can support it so residentially i reckon there's challenges but i think commercially i think it's a must I can't wait for everyone to have a windmill on their house. Oh, Look out. Oh. <laughs> the really rich people have five windmills. And, and then the windmill, and then the wind stops. <laughs> <laughs> oh, living in Melbourne, you're fine. The wind never stops here. Um, yeah, so back on, I guess on the, on the app side of it, um, it just took all those negative elements that we experience with customers. We don't want to lose or have arguments with customers over things that are beyond our control. Yep. And to take them away and just make it about the coffee 
and supply and the yep. relationship and the service and not everything else. And to make all the other things completely transparent. Away. So yeah. to be transparent and kind of, and um, <laughs> everyone's responsible for what they're responsible for. And it's all clear and open. And, I, can't, and, and I, I had so much, uh, pissing myself laughing the very first time the client rang me and said, oh, we didn't order that much. And I go, oh, you did? And there's the order from the system. And in the cloud, Johnny signed for it. Here's a copy. Oh. Oh. <laughs> Conversation over. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Got off the phone. Like, How good's this? Um, but yeah, no, the, the system's really good. Um, uh, I really do love how it integrates with Zero. Yeah. Uh, because, you know, the other the other point about it integrating with Zero is, even though they're all in draft, what I can do is click on each of the client, just click on and go, oh, they use forty kilos this week. Click on another one and go, oh, they only use 10. Hang on a minute. They've been using 50 kilos of root. Why are they only using 10 this week? So you've got a bit more of a, an idea of their business. This is one of the important things um, where I, you know, uh, us being a software company, we're about automation. But yeah. I always tell people that just slow down with the automation sometimes because sometimes it's actually better to not automate certain things. And this is a classic example where... If you automated every single invoice that gets created and you, they just went directly through draft once a customer orders, yep. you wouldn't have the visibility to see how many kilos a week your customers are ordering. 100%. And yep. you know you know that if they're ordering 20 and they used to order 50, Something's you know someone's sniffing around trying to take your customer or you know you know that something's or their business is struggling a bit. So you know something's going on. Mm-hmm. So I think that um, this whole idea of everything being perfectly automated the entire way through all the way from you know cradle to grave mm-hmm. I think is a is a myth and needs to stay a myth because you do need some manual checks along the way. Well, that's a good point because um, um, initially when they spoke to us when they were building the app, um, I said, do you want this to automatically go from zero as soon as they sign for it? Bang, you don't have to worry about a thing. And I thought that was a good idea. Initially I said, yeah, yeah, absolutely. That sounds brilliant. Then I can be anywhere I like and I'm not going to get hassled like I did in Thailand, right, when, mm. when I was with my family. Um but then as the weeks went by, I said, no, I want it in draft. I want to be able to have a look at it and see what the issues are. And even today, like if we load up a new client, I've seen a desk from the staff that have um, loaded up their card on the back end. A decimal point's gone in the wrong spot. And so, for example, if you know a kilo of chocolate's $12, um, it had $120. So they, they do the delivery and they've got five chocolate at $120. Bucks. They build the client $600. Mm. You know, yeah. That that straight away the client's going to go. What the hell's going on here? They usually would laugh at it and say, "What's going on?" Mm. Right, and that's happened a few times. But it gives me an opportunity to go through the bill and go, "Well, he usually only gets a bill of a thousand dollars every week. Why is it two thousand? Mm. And then you go back and say, "Hey guys, um, whoever entered that last car, can you just put the decimal point in the right spot?" <laughs> or, um, or else you can you can pay the customer's bill <laughs> on their behalf. <laughs> that's it. That's it. Um, or. We, you know, you, you're basically working out um, um, the double checks of manual inputting because you can't completely avoid anything manually, but it's what you just said before. You can, be, you can be, you can be, you have no visibility. Hundred percent. And then that's and then that's a that's a that you lose a customer that you've spent three months trying to get. I mean, it's worth doing those checks for. But it, but even if it can go the other way, most people are generally honest. We've had clients say, "Hey, um, where the decimal point's gone the other way? Two dollars fifty for the coffee instead of twenty five or twenty six dollars." They've said, um, "Stacey, you've undercharged us." Oh shit! Thanks for that. Um, then we go back and correct it. 
Um, but what we don't want to do is we don't want to have a situation where we've undercharged a client and no one's told each other or no one knows. So there still has to be other checks and balances, just not as much work as what we used to have to do. I want to get into talking about um, input costs because <laughs> I know that we've had, you know, we've had a number of conversations about input costs and yeah. I talk with every single, um, you know, every single business that uses pencil now, that's, the, that's where the conversation is and it doesn't matter what you're in. Um, yeah. uh, the input costs are killer. Um, but I imagine with your type of business, it's even worse because of the logistic, um, logistical operation about getting stuff from overseas to here yeah. in a timely manner. I think that's, that's, that's an enormous, enormous addition. Then you've got all the deliveries and stuff. Can you talk about the cost of your raw grain bags? Yeah, for sure. <clears throat> so, you know, back in the days when, um, yeah, we're moving into the new factory and I started doing 12, six to 12 month contracts. Um, we had to establish um, some credibility with our green bean suppliers. So we had to be great payers, um, have good relationships, um, you know, keep business flowing consistently to a number of groups, not just all heavily with one particular uh, group. Um, what that allowed us to do is um, they allowed us to do 12 month contracts. So there was enough confidence for me to book up stock with these guys as if I'm booking direct from the origin, except I'm doing it through my uh, green bean brokers, green bean suppliers. And, and their, their wealth of knowledge is fantastic. I ring them up and say, hey, I'm running low on this. You know, what's happening in the next three to four months? Can we book this in? Mm -hmm. Just to try to keep the cost down. But since the probably July, August last year through to now, um, contracts are shorter because the volatility is there. Australian dollars dropped significantly. Mm. Transport costs, you know, getting a container brought across from Peru or Brazil was $800, $900. Um, it was upwards of 12000 Yep. <laughs> containers, sitting on, okay. containers sitting on the water, not in the ports when they should be in the ports. So a six to eight week stock turnaround from country of origin to in this factory uh, was turning into 14 to 16 weeks. I I I can't I I um I was overseas I know two weeks ago and I came back through Singapore and as you're flying over Singapore, mm. there's no shit five hundred containers five hundred five hundred yeah. freight ships just waiting and they they're they're circling almost like a plane coming yeah. to land and the costs of running that there's five hundred of them all in this port five hundred and they are it's 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 an amazing so sight to see not just the container cost. But all the transportation costs sitting on the water. Fuel costs, staff costs. So Labor, yeah. refrigeration. Labor to run a freight ship. It's pretty, yeah. <laughs> so until it opens up freely and until there's some stability there and continuity, um, it's still going to be volatile for a while. The other side of it also is, um, of course, Brazil last year had to have a frost in September, October, right in the middle of all this crap. So, you know, Brazil... Um, sneezes, the world catches a cold because mm -hmm. they're the biggest supplier of coffee. coffee yeah. So if they go in and, into negative compared to their previous years, people supply and demand, people have to get their coffee from other regions to substitute it uh, at some stage. So the flow on is enormous to uh, other countries of origin. Other countries are limited with their stock that they pull out you know, out of the grounds. Um, so there's pressure on those prices, so those prices go up. Mm -hmm. So Brazil at the same time as COVID and all their transportation issues, it couldn't have been a worse combination in the history of me being in this in this game. Yeah, the the out of control. The concept of 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 
that supply and demand alone as an economic principle oh. is a killer. But add to that the fact that you've got, you've got every single government in the world that decides that, you know what, we're going to make energy really hard to come by now and we're going to stop production of energy. Yeah. Okay, cool. No worries. But, you know, everything's going to cost double. And energy is the input into fucking everything. Everything. Everything, everything. everything we do, the cost of oil, gas, yeah. whatever it is, is just, you know, is going to elevate that. Um, and I just think the fact that the governments couldn't uh, start to say, okay, go and produce a bunch of energy now because mm. what that's going to do is drop that input. We've still got the, still got the supply issue. And it is a, it is a, it's a supply-driven problem right now. Yep. Right. It was, you know, back a while ago, it was, it was, it was, it was a little bit about demand mm-hmm. from a consumer perspective. But now the com- the commercial element is just a supply problem. People just can't get stuff to sell. They, well, can, they just can't get it on shore. We had Peruvian coffee that was supposed to be here in September last year, and I booked it in June, thinking I'd forward, you know, covering my bases. And I got it at a good price. Um, it didn't come to the end of January, beginning of February. So to keep. Um, my blends um, to not compromise my blends and to keep them consistent um, I bought Peruvian coffee at spot pricing which is spot pricing is what it is at the moment right? what it is um, uncontracted sitting on the floor and they sell that based on um, the sea market right? which is coffee's traded on the sea market mm-hmm. um, US dollars per pound so that's volatile as well it's like gold so you have to be able to predict the future, mm-hmm. like really, like yeah. months and months in advance. Months and months and months. And yep. then so and that's got cash flow implications because you got to pay for it. Yep. But like then you got to pay, no doubt, some of it, some of it at the time when you're ordering it. Well, <clears throat> using brokers takes that element out of it, yep. that side of it. But they've got to have containers on the, on on the water, replacing the ones coming in, replacing, replacing. All of a sudden, you take eight to twelve weeks out of the equation that no one in the world can can change. For about three to four months, we had to pay spot pricing, which was you know one and a half to two times what my contracted stock was. It's very hard to go back to your cafes and say, "Hey guys, it's one and a half to two times." Yeah. Oh, by the way, just just for this three months, we need to um, add another ten dollars or five dollars a kilo to your coffee price. It's but, not going to work. And then after that, it'll come back. But then you know, I mean, it's just it's impossible. No, you, so, you just you have to wear it. You have to wear some well, of it, right? You do. So we. We're probably wearing sixty to seventy percent of it. We're just going through a transition phase at the moment with our clients, where for the first time in ten to twelve years, we are you know, raising our prices slightly. But because the market's so competitive, we've got to be careful how much we raise our prices. So it, we're copying a lot of a lot of a hit. It, and it also doesn't help when you look at it from the cafe's perspective when um, uh, a new government comes in and raises the uh, minimum wage by five percent off the bat like that. Yeah. That does not help. That's not does not help. That, that that doesn't help the cafes, right? Because yeah, you raise your price, they've got wages up. And just naturally, they have to they have to increase their their pricing mm-hmm. across the board. So we've been trying to educate our clients by saying, look, if we raise your price by two dollars a kilo, just well, for example, um, and you're selling coffee at four dollars for an eight ounce cup, if you raise your price by twenty cents, um, you'll make between seven and and twelve dollars a kilo more. All right, so it's time to raise your prices right across the board. Um, but people are fearful that if they raise the price, they're going to go down the road to get the $3.80 coffee. Yep. All right. Um, and the, 
that, that fear is real, but it's not quite reality. People like the person they're coming in it, to see every day it's, and it's, coffee. It's and... not. It's not reality. Like no. the reality. The reality is the fact that this this barista knows my name and what coffee I have. Yeah. He knows how many sugars and how how hot I want it. All the all the nuances that Melbourne coffee drinkers like, yeah. they know it and. Fucked if I'm going to go down the road to someone someone cents. different for 20 cents. I mean, mm. it's just not... It's actually... They're not living in reality Reality if they think they're going to lose a customer because of an extra but 20% they, they rise. May, they may lose some, but are they the clients that they wanted to keep in the first place? Yeah. Probably not. And they're not the clients that come every day. No, they're not. They'll come in once a week. Yeah. And now that people are tapping their cards now as well, mm. and they don't physically have the cash in their wallet, yep. it's not quite... Yeah, the whole uh, breaking another dollar yeah, problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's a lot easier. You're not... I've got twenty dollars today for lunch. Oh my god! Oh, is it going to be twenty five? Mm-hmm. People tapping their cards. Tapping it's the really, cards. it's really taken away pro- like a level of price sensitivity from from consumers. Yeah. You know, you know, in a way. Yeah, hundred percent. So, right now, I think it's it's a big reset um, at retail. Uh, the great reset. It's is, it is a, <laughs> a great reset. Yeah, uh, it really is. Um, but everyone has to do it. Yeah. So I don't know. I think if wages go up collectively right across the board. Uh, it'll probably solve a lot of that problem, but it's not going to happen. Next year, I think I think we'll see. We won't see coffee prices from a wholesale perspective anywhere near like it was pre-COVID. It just will not happen. You can't have a one in a hundred year experience and expect it to go back to normal. Mm-hmm. Um, I think this is going to take a long time to wash out, but I think next year it'll settle down a bit. In our game, we're really relying on Brazil to have a bumper crop. So they're going to the trouble now of putting um, through the whole harvesting process um, from uh, growing the beans to harvesting the crop. Um, cameras now that show each stage so that they... So they can pick things up quickly. Yeah, to see what's going to happen down the track. Yeah, okay. Um, and we keep getting feedback that you know this this Brazil crop's going to be all right. Um, I was going to say, because the... Um if you're a spec, if you're if you're a speculator on on the on on the price of coffee, having having cameras on so you can actually predict, actually interesting, yeah, it, it, very interesting uh, way to make a little bit of coin. Well, th- yeah, the problem is though um, now, you know, we, we hope the negative, the positive from the potential recession that might happen next year. The positive, I guess, from a supply perspective, is um, that's generally when prices start to turn a bit. Mm-hmm. Right, because demand's obviously slowed down big time. Um, we noticed for a short period of time when um, Russia invaded Ukraine that um, there's six million bags of coffee not going to Russia because of the embargoes. Mm-hmm. And overnight, it went from crazy two dollars eighty per pound down to about two fifty. Yep. Right. So. Just extracting six million bags away from Russia filtered through the rest of the gave the rest world. of the market a bit of a reprieve. Kind yeah. Of thing. Yeah, yeah. So that we saw an adjustment at that particular phase, and we we're like, okay, well, that's there to stay for a while. So there's a little bit of relief. So it brought the price back to it's still a very high level, but it dropped it from something that we hadn't seen for fourteen years. Yep. Um, so it's interesting. And um, the um and. Probably the last thing I want to cover off is is you know where do you see in the next little bit because um, over the last two years, no doubt you've seen some cafes um, you know fall off and and, and go out of business. Yep. Um, is it as many as you thought? Is the first question, and then the second question is, do you start to, do you see that accelerating now? Look, I think for quite a long time, like I'd say 
pre-COVID for about three or four years. Um, there was a massive influx of people coming in from overseas, buying cafes to get residency. So, you know, if there was a really good cafe and then another one three or 400 metres down the road and they're both doing really, really well, all of a sudden you've got two more right in the middle of them. Mm-hmm. Um, that was just one side of it, but also more people got into owning, wanting to own cafes. So there was a glut. Uh, we had a cafe in Armadale at the time and um, uh, three doors down, they were killing it. We came in. Um, they decided that if we took you know, 30, 40 kilos a week out of that system there, that they couldn't survive losing 10 to 20 kilos a week. Mm-hmm. It was just it was a bit like a Subway franchise, you know, one opening up a kilometre down the mm-hmm. road. So it's not dissimilar to this in the coffee game. Yeah, and you know, I mean, we both know from having run cafes before, mm. you get you got to get your coffee up to a certain point, and then then it's then, then that's the only way it becomes profitable mm. once it's over that threshold. And if you drop anywhere around that threshold or below it, you're cooked. Yeah, and especially when you know coffee at the retail end is quite profitable for the cafe owners. It's, it's high labor at scale. Yeah, yeah, it's high labor, um, and it's low dollar purchase you know four or five dollars as opposed to sitting there having a 25 dollar meal mm. right that's equivalent you know five or six co- cups of coffee so it's high turnover for coffee um, to make the money but um but if you can extract a lot of cups out of that brewster per hour that yeah. they're working yeah. then it becomes economical but um you need to extract those that, that amount of cups on like per average hour type of thing 100%. The, the other thing um, that we noticed you know, through covid and, and post that period um, is COVID has a lot of the weaker cafes have gone out of the system Uh um, and I guess it's given reprieve for some of the ones that have remained now Uh Um, they're they're becoming a bit better more buoyant Um, the city is still a bit of a tough one yeah and we've got clients we we lost 17 of 21 of our clients in the city never to return so and, and then, then, so, so that 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 suburban versus we'll call it urban or yeah, city yeah. that's a that's been that's been a revelation hasn't it these all these suburban cafes smashed it obviously because no one's going into the city anymore home. but i mean the government's effectively decided we're going to put every single cafe out of business in the city that's what they, that's what they said so what we're seeing now though we're seeing a lot like you've got a lot of even you know good restaurants restaurant cafes they would open up for breakfast and lunch and then um, be prepared for dinner and have a great restaurant and bar trade. Um, what we're seeing now is a lot of those businesses are not doing breakfast and lunch. They're just opening up for dinner. Right? And they're very pop- still very popular at night time. The problem you've got is you've got a massive floor space. You're paying rent. On paying the, the rent. You're paying rent in the morning and, and, the, yeah. and lunch. Yeah. So what, what we're seeing a lot of is um, bigger venues during COVID splitting it in half. Mm-hmm. Or shutting down and moving it close by to a smaller venue, rejigging their operation to a smaller operation, uh, maybe getting rid of breakfast and lunch and doing dinner. Because um, people, we, we'll still travel to go into the city to have you know favorite restaurants and, and booze, and drinks, absolutely. And and we know that like let's face it, a restaurant if you got you got chairs, you have to sell booze. Yeah. Like otherwise, very hard to make money. So in a lot of the the cafes that are remaining at the moment. They're just not doing the volume that they used to do. Mm. And when you speak to them, they say things like, you know, it's great in theory that everyone's back in the office, supposedly, but now what's ingrained is uh, work from home. So you've got someone that's full-time, five days a week in the city, normally there. A building's got 10,000 people in it. Well, a lot of them are saying you can have Friday or Monday off. So they're saying Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursdays are quite busy or 
uh, Mondays and Fridays. Um, it's a waste of time. I was talking to a cab driver who picked me up at the airport the other day because um, I came home on a Friday night. And I said, oh, has you, you know, have you had a busy night? Da, da, da. And I said, oh, you know, fr- uh, Friday nights are usually busy. People yeah. out people out in the piss, da, 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 da. And you know what he said to me? He goes, not anymore. I go, why? He said, everyone works from home Mondays and Fridays now. So the whole idea, the whole, Friday con- night drinks, the whole concept yeah, yeah. of after work drinks is gone. finished. It's gone. So there's a bit, and I don't work in offices anymore. Um, but that was part of having a really good culture. Oh, have a few drinks together, absolutely. go out for dinner as a team. Um, you know, now it's like everyone's on Zoom meetings. Interestingly, know? I was reading an article the other day about um, about this whole idea and concept of people working from home and mm. what that does to their career progression. Because all of the all of the bosses of all these businesses are giving people the option to either um, work from home or to you know because they feel like they can't push it yet, yep. can't push everyone back into the office. But what they're finding, and they did some, they did a bunch of surveys and that type of thing. What they're finding is the people that are going into the office are the ones getting career progression yeah. because they're creating the relationships with all the middle management, which is awesome, which is brilliant because they're actually going in and putting in the effort. Yeah. And I think you need some, you need to have some face time with with staff and and with and with um, leaders because otherwise, how do you know what's expected? It can't just be this Zoom thing. We're not a yeah, we're humans. We need we need look, feel, touch, all that type of thing. I, I think you're right. Yeah, it's pretty hard to get a promotion if you don't really know what pushes certain people. If they're never around, if they don't, if if your boss doesn't like you, he's not going to give you a promotion. And the way he gets to like you is by socialising with you somehow. But also stress testing people in the workplace. Mm. I mean, you really see who the performers are when you load them up with a heap of work, right? And and find out cool. if they respond. Yeah. You know, are you going to get cooked in five minutes, or are you going to see it out? Mm. You know. And I, I just don't think you can do that in a perfect world. Having people working from home. certain industries, you know, work from home. You know, and then from working from home, go out and travel and see clients. Like I know my finance guys at the moment. Um, one of them I deal with, he's moved out to Colac, mm-hmm. and I still transact with him like normal but i had a relationship with him before he moved that's the other difference too yeah you see whereas he wasn't the guy from colac that was introduced to me today for geared finance i was introduced to him when it was all face to face and some businesses really we'll call it profited but some businesses covid was good for like I look at our business. I used to go out and see every client face to face early days. You know, we only we only launched you know a few years ago, but mm. but you know, I would come out and I'd just go and see every client face to face because a lot of the people we dealt with, they you know, they hadn't they had never heard of Zoom at the at the time. Oh, I never did. But then it just <laughs> but then it just flipped and it meant that rather than going and seeing rather than having three appointments booked at the start of the day yeah. and one cancelling on you, so you only go and see two you can you can have eight. You can talk to eight people throughout the day and have a good conversation. Yeah. And you share your computer screen. We're in software, so it makes sense that you'd share your computer screen. So it actually lent itself to that. But you well, you're, you're a perfect industry. You know, a lot of other industries, though. I mean, it's hard. Yeah. yeah. I, I, just interesting to see where relationships go. Um, you know, we're in a really relationship-based industry in the cafe game. You know, the point of difference between us and another coffee company could could actually just be the rep that sees them every week. Mm-hmm. You know, and as soon as a particular rep leaves your company, often um, a lot of relationships go with, with that representative at the same time. And you it's know crazy. that you know that there's three other reps sniffing around. 
that's three. the three and the, and the rest. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, it's it's very competitive. So it's all relationship based. There's a lot of good coffee out there. So it's a bit of branding, um, good coffee, good pricing, but significant relationship and service. So so um, you you might be able to see in the background um, this, and we'll we'll probably finish up with this. You guys have just done a massive rebrand from where you mm, were. Yeah. Um, can you give us just a little bit of info? Yep. Of, so why did you do it? And number two, um, you know, uh, what kind of benefit do you reckon you're going to see from it? Yeah, well, look, <clears throat> I think every four or five years, maybe even six, maybe every four or five years, um, having a rebrand invigorates your team and, and you yourself, you get excited about what you're doing again. Um, and you don't go through the motions um, and you start thinking about new ideas and new things and it gets exciting, new websites, new brand packaging. Um, we get to go out to see clients with something that's completely different than what we had before. So it may also help us go back to clients that have said no in the past. Mm-hmm. It could it could help you know open the door again for for you know clients that we really want to get on board. It restarts the conversation. 100% it does. You know, and it rejuvenates the whole team. It's amazing to see this process and you know, new branded cups that we're, we're about to launch, um, new boxes that the bags go in, really different boxes, you know, colourful, match the bags. It's really nice to see our staff getting um, excited about it because you've got something new to go out to the clients with. Plus they're involved in the conversation around creation and all that type of thing. Well, we all, we're so very actually, collaborative. Yeah, you know, yeah. Absolutely. What do you think about this? No, I don't like it. Oh, okay. So I'm not precious enough to uh, not take on other people's opinions because they are part of the public. Mm-hmm. You know, if, it, if they go yes, and that was the biggest fear when we were launching this new, new branding is, is it going to appeal to everyone? Maybe not. We don't want to be offensive. Um, and, and we've found it's been exciting. Uh, people have enjoyed it because it is very, very different to what's out there. So we're getting a buzz as a team. We did a lot of this in the lead up for the Melbourne International Coffee Expo, which is in September. So this has been 12 months. Uh, and so we were doing this during COVID when we had more time for marketing. So we're, sure, we're going, well, was me. We know when you're as busy. Oh, my God. But in the background, we're like, well, this is an opportunity. We've got more time, a couple mm. of days a week, to spend on marketing, websites, content, all these sorts of things that now, only now in the last few months, we're starting to do. And yet we started March, April last year. And you'll, yeah, and like it's it's a it's a long leading to start to see the fruits from that type of um from that type of work because unless you hire an agent external agency, you you're just not going to get the stuff onto the off the production line into the you know, into the ether on online onto your website etc. Fast enough for it to you know for it to happen in three months. It's just not it's just not possible. So these are you know they are twelve month journeys. It's, and, and this will end up because of COVID where we, we took a bit more time. Um, and because we knew we had to, we had to wait to see if the Melbourne International Coffee Expo was going to actually go ahead because mm-hmm. it was cancelled the two years prior. And then when there was clean air at the beginning of the year, that's when we really put the foot down on the rest of the stuff that we needed to do. So we had the foundations, but then we, when we knew, okay, lockdowns are not going to happen anymore, or hopefully um, yeah. not going to happen anymore, we then said, right, let's put our foot down, let's spend the money on it now, let's get everyone involved, let's do this by the twenty seventh of September, get all our ducks in a row. It's hit mice hard. Um, sometimes, uh, sometimes it takes a deadline to it. It does. It takes it's, a deadline to stressful. actually to actually um, produce, especially with time frames like historically, it would take eight nine weeks to get our branded bags from design to print to back from um, Taiwan. Sixteen weeks. 
So at the beginning of the year, we're like, oh my God, where are we going to get the cups done? Where are we going to get the bags done? How long is it going to take um, the company that does our boxes? What lead time do these guys need? Are we going to have all this ready for the 27th of September? So we had to get all of our sh- shit in order, mm. January, February, March. Um, and we're still rushing to get stuff done. Building a stand, because this is our first stand we've ever done. Yeah. You know, first, <laughs> first stand, and it's not cheap, you know. Um, but we also want to make a bit of a splash. Yep. Like, we don't want to go there and be like every other stand. We want to go, hang on a minute, This what's on our bags, uh, what our team's about needs to come out in this stand. Um, so, And the, the team's nervous. It's good. They're nervous about the first yeah, nervous international is, coffee expo. Nervous is a good thing, I find, um, because... When you're nervous about something, you would hope that their staff would be over over preparing. But it's also because, they give a shit, yeah, because they want it. They want it to work. Mm. So you know, if they're blase about it, that would be a concern. Yeah. The fact that they want to do a good job, I can already sense it in them by the way they're behaving mm. and the way they're trying to get stuff done by the deadline and stuff that stuff they're putting on me. As a business owner, yeah. it, it reinvigorates you a little bit as well, doesn't it? Well, they're pushing me because it's really hard to stay. It's hard to stay one hundred percent interested. You've been here. For, you've been doing this for a long, for a pr- pretty long time. Yeah. Probably the longest, maybe aside from Subway, probably the longest that you've had a business. Mm. Um, every year coming back and can redoing it, and then get whacked, whacked around with COVID, and whacked around with this customer goes out of business, and you lose the the five, six, seven, eight weeks of credit that you've given them. So there's all these different factors well, that come into play. Going back to what you said before, um, even though we've moved on to the branding side of it. Um, we, you know, we lost 17 out of 21 in the city, but you, you mentioned um, what's happened in the past, like during COVID, like how many people have actually closed their doors, what do we see happening in the future? Well, what we're seeing at the moment is some places that have just been tired of COVID and what it's done to them, we're seeing them get to the end of their lease term and just saying that's it. Mm-hmm. So that's happened a few times this year to so some clients that we thought, Wow, we didn't think you'd just shut your doors. All right, well, they've tried to sell it, and if no one wants to buy it, they've just said, no, we're getting to the end of the lease. Because it's been difficult to find staff. Like, there's a shortage. So if you've got a lack of baristas, a lack of chefs, the owners never worked more in their own business than, than now. Four or five years ago, they might do you know, 15, 20, 25 hours, 30 hours in their shop. Now they're, they're having to be in there all the time, a lot of them. Um, as soon as, as as soon as the as soon as international travelers and yeah. international students didn't have the ability to earn any any money, yeah. right? Everything shuts down. Australian citizens get get funded, and everyone else who's not an Australian citizen see you later, right? So they all leave. Yeah. Yeah. That's mm. the fact that you're losing your student base. That's your entire kitchen, and the fact that you're losing your traveler base. That's your entire front of house staff. And, chefs, and it actually is a lot of good chefs come from overseas. Yep, a lot, a lot of, of um, a lot of British. Scottish, Irish, um, f- uh, certainly front of house stuff in, in my experience and no doubt chefs. Yep. But then you lose um, all the Indian and Asian students that come through. That's your whole kitchen. And, you know, every single cafe that you go to, that's what you see. So when they get, you know, when they get tired coming out the other end of COVID, which we all did, all right, um, the staff isn't there. We've got landlords wanting to go back to, you know, pre-COVID, uh, rent, rents. Um, Plus, they want their arrears back. Yeah, yeah, and it's hard to get all that back, you know. Um, and then if they've got equipment finance, it's been on hold. They've got to repay the the gap on that. Um, it, it's it's 
it's difficult. So I understand when some of them come up to us and say, look, Stace, we've got to the end of the fight, first term five years. Uh, we're not continuing. Um, but then what happens there is um, I guess those other cafes that are around them, they start getting busier, uh, one less in the system. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's hard because everyone you lose, you've got to, to grow, you've got to pick up two. Yeah. Right, you have to, well, you've got to pick up probably three for every two that go, really. And what I'm finding is um, just some cafes winding things up, even when everything's been so a great relationship, great coffee supply, everything's been working well, and then you lose them, you're like, oh man, you know, it, it, that part of it's been tough. Yep. Um, so we just have to you know, keep winning new clients. Yeah, and look, there's a, there's also a there's also if someone's been a client for a long time and you've seen them, you know, and you have you know actually seen them slog their guts out, especially during COVID when you know, and as you know, there's nothing more depressing than a quiet restaurant. There's nothing more depressing, and they've slogged it out throughout that period. And for them to just give the keys back when they've put everything, like you know, they've probably mortgaged their house to to do it, or they've they've um you know put every cent they've got into it. That's uh, it's pretty heartbreaking to see. Um, but you know, that's the that's the unfortunate nature of what's uh, of what of, of what's been happening, and good businesses will remain good businesses. Yeah, but I mean, I don't know if it's a bit of uh, PTS for me when I see this happen to other people, but I look at it and go, "Wow, I, I know exactly how they're feeling." You know who doesn't know how they're feeling? Politicians. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I know. Do they? <laughs> well, they they don't. I mean, it it is. I don't want to get too political, but it is interesting to see how you know one political uh, group have you know seventy five plus percent of their um, their party have owned businesses before, and another group not the one that's in there now, <clears throat> might have 3% of people that are in their party ever owned a business. Mm. And it's interesting to see how the policies are, you know, are different, completely different. Uh, the po- policies are created for voters and, yep. you know, one side's got a lot of um, union-based voters and voters who have been employees the whole life. Yep. And you love it how politicians have been getting 5 and 8% pay rises and... Uh, you know, everyone else is getting fucked in the ass, but you know, Pretty well. here's what it is. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But so it is interesting. I think I think those that remain and don't sell their business and don't um, give up their lease, they hang through. I reckon in the next six to twelve months, things will will get better. Less places, less competition. Yeah, I think so. Uh, and more for them. Yeah, I think so. The, too. the ones that are hanging on that we supply to in the city, their whole whole idea of hanging on. Is been because others around them have closed, mm. so they they're hanging on so that are they seeing the incremental um, incremental burst once another place closes? Yeah, they are. But then, yeah, you know, what doesn't help is when the government a few weeks ago goes, um, we're encouraging masks to be worn everywhere, and we're now encouraging um, businesses to encourage their staff to work from home again. And you just sit there and speak to the cafe owners, and they're sitting back going, "Come on, man, we've gone past this now." And they just, they like, what people don't realise is that every single time that happens, it's just another dagger, another dagger, another dagger. Well, but there's a there's a, a significant portion of the population that can't wait to hear that news, so they can turn around and say to their boss, the "I'm working from class. home, mate. I'm they, working from home." Yeah, they call it the laptop class. People yeah. that can do their job from home. Yeah, it's all well and good for them, but oh, geez, it's tough for those. Yeah, no, no. The government told me that I should be working from home. 
How dare you keep me here? Yeah, it, like it, <laughs> oh, come on. It really strips an employer of a few of their rights, doesn't it? But then, you know what? The ones that remain, and like you said before, the ones that get promoted. Yep, Because yeah, they're already there, and they're going, come on, man. Well, I'm quite happy to work in this environment. It's, it's not that bad. If I, I'm still going to survive. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Mate, that was awesome. Um, uh, Stacey Visser from The Bank Cartel. Thanks for tuning into Product Hub. This episode was brought to you by Pencil Pay the world's fastest credit application and payment software for product sellers and their wholesale customers. If you sell products on payment terms, check us out at www.pencilpay.com and start getting paid on time today. I'm your host, Tim Dimitriou. See you next time.